So if you're new, if you've uh, just come the last couple weeks, my name's Doug, and I get to be the teaching pastor here. We're going to look at the scriptures together. Uh, The common question I've heard this last week is, where'd you go? And I didn't go anywhere. We did what we call staycation. We, We stayed here, and family came to us. So for that... Uh, that for us, that meant uh, 22 of us for four days at the house, 14 adults and eight kids, six of them two and under. So we kind of had to prepare ourselves because can you imagine how much of a wreck a place can be in a matter of minutes? Uh, I, I always think I'm ready and then my grandson showed up and in like 15 minutes I thought, how can somebody destroy something so quickly? And then it's like, there's no point in cleaning it up because it's just going to be a constant wreck. So you just kind of go, let's endure and step over. And we put out all the trash. And somehow when I brought the bins back in, they were still diapers stuck to the bottom of my trash can. So I got Jackie to deal with that. No, I didn't. I just, it's just kind of a wreck. But here's the good news in that. The good news is we turn in our scriptures this morning to Genesis 16 the mess that we're going to see there is actually, regrettably, significantly worse than any two-year-olds can do. Because, uh, it, it, this is so weird to all you mask friends. If I could have your eyes for a moment. Do you have as an adult greater capacity to make a mess than a two-year-old? And I'm not talking about with your toys. I'm talking about with your lives and with your relationships. See, two-year-olds can make a mess, but their mess is pretty fixable. But as adults, what we'll see is we have an incredible capacity to make a mess. And Abram, the friend of God, is a messy friend. And I'm not here to pick on him this morning because I'm a messy friend of God. And I'm not here to pick on you but you're a messy friend of God. We have much more capacity to make a mess than a two-year-old. So what's the context? Well, again, if you have a a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis 16, whether that's a hard copy or on your mobile device, turn with me to Genesis 16. Before we look at the text in Genesis 16, though, uh, let me... Uh, set the context for why this gets so messy. We're introduced to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And we're calling this series Friendship with God because on three occasions, God, God's word specifically identifies Abram as his friend. But here's the first conversation recorded between Abram and God. God says to Abram, in Jack, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Now, context. Abram is 75 years old at this time, married to a lady named Sarai, who is 65 years old at this time. And this was not only awesome that God's blessing is going to be upon me, but it's awesome I'm going to be a great nation because that meant children. And Abram at 75 and Sarah at 65 had no children yet. Now, they live longer than typically people live today, but it wasn't like Methuselah 900 years. Sarai died at 127, Abram at 175. 
So they're at 75, 65, no kids, but God promises, I'm going to make you a great nation. In other words, you're going to have children. Fast forward now to Genesis 16, and you have it open there. Last verse of Genesis 16, how old is Abram identified as? He's identified in verse 16 of Genesis 16 as 86 years old. You can do the math. What's that make Sarai? 76. Still, you know, she never catches up. It's always 10 years apart. So he's 86, 76. That is significant because here's how chapter 16 begins. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him, say it, no children. So how long had they been waiting since the promise? Yeah, this is not a math class, but 10 years, 10 years they have been waiting because at the beginning of the chapter, there's 85 and 75, but at the end of the chapter, they're 86 and 76, 10 years they have been waiting and no children. Now, take it out of storyland, put it into your life. You have a hard time waiting on God for a day or for a week. Very few of us, quite frankly, have waited on the Lord for 10 years or more. It's hard to wait on the Lord. Especially when it's not something that we're saying, well, I hope God's going to do this. I don't know that he's going to do it, but I hope he's going to do it, so I'm waiting. No, this is something that God has said, I I will, I will make you a great nation. I will greatly multiply you. I'm going to give you children. So what's up? 10 years they're waiting. So prepare for the mess. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. A little on the side here. How'd she get an Egyptian maid? Well, back in chapter 12, when they got scared because of the famine and Abram makes a lie about who his wife really is, they went to Egypt and they got really rich, including, that's probably where they picked up Hagar. She is Sarai's maid. So Sarai said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now I want to pause there because this is important. True or false? True or false? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. All right, I got a very strong truth. That's exactly right. Sometimes we don't want to say this, but life is always given by the Lord. And if that's true, then life is prevented by the Lord. Now, I don't say that lightly. I realize for some people I'm touching one of the greatest heartaches of their life. One of the hardest things for some folks have been to wait on the Lord for a child, literally just like this. And it's like, God, why are you preventing? And sometimes we want to protect God and go, no, 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 it's not the Lord. Yes, it is the Lord. I wish I could unravel why it seems like the Lord gives children to some and 
and makes the other barren. I can't unravel that. Oh, I know the big picture. What's the big picture? He's always working for his glory. But why he chooses who to give children and who he chooses to prevent children, beyond that, he's working for his glory. That's a hard wait. And it's a really hard no. So in no means am I diminishing that if that is your heart. I don't want you to shake your fist at God, but let's be honest. The Lord gives life and the Lord prevents life. So when Sarai says to Abram, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, she is telling the truth. And she is expressing real disappointment with God. Correct? Yeah, and, and disappointment's probably clean. <laughs> probably a good church word. For what she's really feeling towards God. So because this is true, here's her plan. Please go into my maid, Hagar. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram, listen to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she conceived, her mistress, that is Hagar, now, excuse me, Sarai, was despised in Hagar's sight. Right. Sarai is now despised in Hagar's sight. She's like, I have God's blessing and you don't. I have the child that you have waited for for 10 years and you don't. Is Sarai at a better place with this plan or a worse place now? Yeah, you don't have to be a rocket science to go, hmm, this didn't go so well. A, a frustrated, a clean, disappointed with God woman is now got her disappointment in her face even more fully, her frustration more fully, and now it's in human form, a pregnant maid that she gave to her husband every day prancing in her face. So what do you do with that? <laughs> May the wrong done me be upon you, said who to who? Sarai to Abram. Now, I think some of the, the conversation probably gets deleted from the text here. Because if you're the guy, what are you going? Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Your idea. May the wrong done be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is just marriage at its best, isn't it? This is, marriage is sweet and from the Lord and always awesome. And these are the, the father and mother of the people of God. <laughs> what a mess. And Abram, as a, you know, just a humble, 
Your maids in your power, do to her what is good in your sight. You know what he's doing there, don't you? He's going, how do I get this anger towards me, off me? Well, I suggest she pour it out on Hagar. This is classic husband move, I hate to tell you. Don't deal with the wrath of your wife, just make it go somewhere else. That's what he does. Don't be harsh to me, back off, get her. And so she does. So Sarah, I treated her harshly, and what, what did Hagar do? She ran away, pregnant. Is that worse than a two-year-old mess? <laughs> you see what I mean now? Uh, this is not, oh man, there's dirty diapers and a cluttered floor and everything's messy and peanut butter on the side of the chair and all that stuff. This is not Play-Doh in the carpet. This is a relational family disaster. The marriage is not in good shape, correct? Correct? Yeah. Now, if, hey, how y'all, how y'all doing? Fine. <laughs> not fine. And, and I say again because Sarah and, and Abram had some rough spots in their marriage. And I don't mean this by that misery loves company. I do mean this that um, the people of God all have their own struggles. Their marriage is struggling. Sarah is still barren. She's just more bitter that she's barren now. Hagar has run away. She's homeless. And because she's run away, Ishmael, who will be introduced later in the chapter, her son is fatherless. So let me ask you a question. Were they trying to make a mess of their family? Now that might seem like a silly question, but this is a good question. Were they trying to make a mess? No, they actually weren't trying to make a mess. What were they trying to do? They were actually saying, we just got to help God. Seriously. I mean, we waited 10 years, and everybody knows insanity has continued to do the same thing and expect a different result. So here's the way we would say it in church. God's closing that door. That's the way you'd pray about it. God's closing this door. We need to look at some other options. I don't think they went, hey, how could we make a family mess that could be, go down forever in history? They were actually going, God has promised, and God said this is going to happen, but it's not happening. We're not getting any, any younger. God's closing the door. Let's look for another door. In other words, every single one of us who, and again, I'm trying to make this real for us because it is very real. Every single one of us make our own mess daily. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small, but all of us are constantly, honestly making messes. And it's not because we want to make a mess, it's because somehow before we made the mess, it seemed like a good idea. It seemed like a good idea that when all the grandkids came, Jackie was like, oh, they're going to love Play-Doh, let's put Play-Doh here and let's bring markers. And I was like, 
36 hours in. Whose idea was it to have a bunch of Play-Doh around here? It's there, it's there, it's there. I came, I'm in the razor blade scraping it off the tile floor. And I was like, okay, bad idea. I'm putting the Play-Doh out of reach. Nobody, honestly, ah, oh, that's not true. Very rarely do we go into a situation and go, how can we wreck this marriage? How can we wreck my life? How can I wreck my family? It starts out with, how can we help God? It seemed like a good idea. See, when, when I, I get into the reality of the text, I go, I could have I went, I, I see what you mean. It seemed like a good idea for, for a couple of reasons. God had promised an heir and was preventing Sarah from conceiving. So, he promised it's not happening normally. Let's pursue some other options. It seemed like a good idea. It seemed like a good idea because actually this plan of a, a, a woman giving her maidservant as a wife, a concubine, was a culturally acceptable practice. And all involved were in agreement. Did Sarah agree? Did Abram agree? Okay, now this one gets a little sticky. Did Hagar agree? Okay. She had less privilege to agree, but actually, uh, if it's asking Q&A, uh, I will address why I think Hagar has some agreement in this. But it's some speculation, so I'm not going to put it in the message. If you hang on and ask, I've really tried to place myself in Hagar's situation. And, and by the way, the more you study Genesis 16, the more you may find that, wow, Hagar is quite a woman. And then, this may have been the most compelling, rational lies. Have you ever broken that word down when you rationalize? How you tell yourself rational lies? Here's the most rational lie. The promise was technically to Abram. Correct? Sure. Go back to, again, Genesis 12. Uh, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I'll show you and I will make you a great nation. So as long as Abram is part of the equation, then Abram and Hagar, that works. Technically, that works. And no offense to the teenagers in the room, because all of us who are old, teenager or older understand this. It's as a teenager that you learn to play the technicality. Come on, just think back when you used to tell the technical truth. It deceived. It was technically true, but it was only technically true. It was crafted in a way as to deceive. I'm trying to read your eyes and 
And your eyes are telling me, no, you were the only deceptful teenager, Doug. You just, you're the only one. I never knew anything. I don't think that's true. I think you technically told the truth to intentionally deceive. And every once in a while, even as adults, we, well, technically, here's a little secret. As soon as I say, well, technically, I'm probably setting up a rational lie. Not always, but I should be in tune that that's probably a rational lie coming because I had to say, well, technically. So technically, it was to Abram. So they weren't trying to make a mess. They were trying to help, but let's not miss. Just because you're trying to help doesn't mean you're helping. Give you a real life example. Is it helpful to wash a new car with a Brillo pad? That's not a theoretical question. Is it helpful to wash a brand new car with a Brillo pad? (laughs) Okay. More than technically, no. But in an attempt to help, Jackie's brother, she has four of them, so I won't name the guilty washer. But he thought, oh, dad's brand new car. Let me wash it for him. And what could wash it better than a Brillo pad? So with a lot of soap and water, he washed it clean and then rinsed it off. And I've often put myself in her dad's shoes. What do you do with that? Short of murder. <laughs> See, he lacked, he lacked some understanding of the Brillo pad and what it would do. And now, very seriously, what did they miss that caused them to say, it seems like a good idea and it turned out to be such a wreck. There are genuinely, for every single one of us, me at the front of the line, there is truth in this that I hope will serve us. Here's what they missed. We'll see it straight from the text. They missed that when it comes to our responsibility to the Lord, it is to trust him, not to help him. It's to trust him not help him. And how do we know that? Well, Ryan taught it just last week from Genesis 15. When God establishes his covenant with Abram, it says, then he believed in the Lord and it reckoned to him as righteousness. Abram was not righteous because of what he did. Abram was righteous because of what he, he believed. Because if he could, was required to become righteous by what he did, he would never be righteous. And in case you miss it in verse 6 there, that it was his believing that made it righteous, God puts on this demonstration that Ryan talked about that couldn't be more clear. He's going to say, let's do a cultural covenant where we cut the animals in half and two people who are making an agreement walk through except 
Abram didn't get sleepy. God put him to sleep because God had no intention for him to walk through. Because if he walked through, he was going to blow the covenant. The only way the covenant was going to last is if God himself made it with himself. You understand? Listen. This whole idea that we're saved by grace through faith is not just a New Testament idea. Righteousness has only ever been obtained through believing. It's true for Abram. It's true for you and I. That it is by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not like... God does some and then I do some. But listen, there's no greater lie in our world that says, it says this. God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you, to pay for your sin. And he has done his part and now you must do your part. You see, so many people start coming to church because they think, well, I need to clean up my life. I need to, and guys, the guys will say this to me. I, I just, I, I know I'm far from God. I need to stop cussing. I, I know I'm far from God. I know I need to stop looking at stuff that I'm looking at. As if the cleaning up of my life, the doing of good things could somehow make me righteous. There is only one way by which you and I will ever be made righteous, and that is by believing, by trusting, by faith. Three words tied together in the scripture. Believing, trusting, faith. That is the only way you will be made righteous. And so I just want to say again right now, if you are listening and you're thinking, I'm trying to work my way back to God, trying to clean up my life to make myself acceptable to God, you'll never get there. Actually, listen, the more you try to clean up your life to restore, to gain relationship with God, the further away you're getting. The only way you can come to God is by believing I'll never get there on my own. I can only trust in him. Abram believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, sometimes we get confused by the fact that then it says the next verse, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. But don't miss that. Whose workmanship are we? His. We are in Christ because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the next lie is, well, I trust in Jesus to be my savior, my forgiver, so that I can be saved from hell and go to heaven. That's what I thought. All right, now, having trusted in him to be my savior, now I must work good for him. Help him. I am created for good works, but I am his workmanship. 
the good works that you and I are created for if we are in Christ is continued to be his work just like it was true. Don't miss this. Just like it is true in your salvation, it is true in your living out now your relationship with him. I couldn't be good enough and once he has made me righteous, I am still totally dependent upon him. Here's why I know this. Because that was the explanation of Jesus for his life. Jesus of Nazareth says in John 14, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Do not miss. Whose works are they? The Father's works. And who does the Father's works? The Father does the Father's work. What was the role of Jesus? To recognize his oneness and submit to his leadership. He was simply, Jesus of Nazareth was simply an instrument through which God, the Father, did the Father's works. Do you see that? I'm in the Father, Father's in me, there's oneness. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, that's submission to his leadership. But the Father abiding in me does, the Father does the Father's works. That is so significant to understand the life of Jesus because minutes later, Jesus then says to his disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, the oneness and submission of Jesus to the Father so that the Father would do the Father's works is the relationship that you and I are intended to have with Jesus. Oneness with him, submission to his leadership so that we do what Jesus did to the Father, we submit. And Jesus does through us what the Father did through him. He does his works. Why? Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Anytime, don't miss, anytime you try to help God by doing what you think is best or you try to do what you think God wants you to do in your strength, what will you make? You'll make a mess. Uh, guys, your turn's coming, but moms? Most moms think they need to help God with their kids. And you end up getting in the way of what God would want to do. Because, uh, and you would never say this, but here's, what, here's what's really happening. I'm not sure God's going to take good care of my kids, so I got to Get in there and help him out. I'm not sure he's going to keep him safe. I got to keep him safe. I was really struck this week. Uh, surprised, honestly. Pastor Omega Church said they're not opening services again until the new year. Explanation? Because we cannot gather and guarantee safety. And I went... We could never do that. If we're open here this morning, because I can guarantee you your safety, you should probably leave right now. 
There's no guarantee of safety. There's no guarantee of safety of you staying in your house. That is whose responsibility? Our safety is in the Lord's hand. And it's a, it's a real unique time for us to go, what's it mean for me to trust the Lord right now without trying to help him keep me safe? Well, maybe you all have that figured out. Or maybe your anxiety reveals you don't. You see, what's our role? To get up every day and go, whatever the circumstances today, whatever's happened in my family, whatever's happened in the world, whatever's happened in my work, whatever happened with my health, whatever happened with my job, I am trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. That's my role. Trust in you. I'm going to trust in you. This is your work. You're the one who does it. I'm going to trust in you. When we forget that, and folks, in 15, he's believing, and it's credited in righteousness. And in 16, he's making a wreck. So let's acknowledge we can be trusted one day and make a wreck tomorrow. Every single day, it's an, uh, to trust you, Lord. I am not, you do not need my help. This is your work. You're going to do it. I am simply an instrument in and through which you will do what you intend to do. I'm one with you. I'm submitted to you. I'm available to you. You hear me? If that would be our prayer every single day, Lord, I am one with you by what you've done. I'm submitted to you and I'm available to you. You do your work today. I am trusting in you. Second truth. They missed that our moral compass can't be set by cultural practices or popular opinion. Their moral compass got skewed by what was acceptable in the culture and what was agreed upon by them. And quite frankly, what's happened in the church, what's happened in the lives of believers, as our culture has continued to divert from this compass, we've found ourselves going, wow, I'm I'm not sure, am I following the scriptures or am I following what's happening in our culture? Are they right or is he right? And we think initially, well, it's always obviously he's right. But the longer and the more people that say, no, that's not right, this is right, the church begins to shift. And what happens? We have a huge mess in denominations who shift because their compass shifted with culture. And what happens in homes? Messes because, in marriages, because the compass begins to shift. And we go, well, that seems like old and ancient. We got to stay current and cultural, and this is acceptable now. We will make a mess, Christian Family Chapel, if we allow our cultural practices and our popular opinion to begin to influence our moral compass. And so it's becoming less and less popular. It's beginning to be placed as hate speech. It's not hate speech, but the scripture says homosexuality is a sin. 
the scripture says God created a man and God created a woman. The scripture says that sex is reserved for marriage and that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. You see the cultural compass shift. And the longer it goes, the harder it is to stay true. So this is just just my encouragement to myself, to you. Understand, if you shift, a mess is coming. We think somehow that will be better. We'll be a better church if we shift with the culture. No, we'll cease to be the church as God intended us to be. It's not hate speech. It's staying true to the absolute truth of Scripture. Third truth they missed. (laughs) Marriage makes two people one. Marriage makes two people one. When did they miss that? Well, technically, it's just to Abram. When Abram and Sarai were married, two became one. So the promise to Abram that I'll make you a great nation, was that a, problem to, was that a promise to Sarai as well? You sure? You sure? Yeah, I am absolutely certain because she was his wife and God declared the two shall become one. And so... If you're in here, north, online, and you're single, some encouragement to you. Don't act like you're one until you're married. Or you're going to make a mess. Pure and simple. Second encouragement, singles. Don't get married until you're done being single. I'm amazed at the number of people who are single who can't wait to be married and then get married and still want to live like they're single. What's the difference? Here's session one, premarital, if you're in my office. Up to this point, you are dating and engaged, which means this. You live separate lives and you agree when you're going to be together and then you go home or you go I'm not feeling well I'm going home or I'm not feeling well well that's not me and then you're going to get married and this is seems so obvious but this will make all the difference you now have a new mindset we are one and we're only apart when we agree it's that simple Because God has made marriage to be two, become one. So if you're single and you're not done being single, don't get married and don't act like you are. If you're married, it's a lot, I see a lot of married folks in here. I'm sure there's a lot of married folks watching. If you create a separate life from your spouse, a mess is coming. Because God intended you to create a life together. 
I don't always do it, but more and more in the ring ceremony and a marriage that I'll do. It's not the old with this ring, either you wed, da 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 da, meaningless. It's this. When you put this ring on your finger, you say, I am done being single. It will no longer be me, it will be us. In the small ways and the big ways, folks, as soon as, just this afternoon on a small way, if I think me, not us, I'm going to have a mess. That's going to get talked about about 11 o'clock at night. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> big ways, small ways, anytime either spouse says, no, I'm thinking me, not us, a mess is coming. And it's straight here. We just see. They lost the fact that God had made them one. And therefore, the promise was to both. There was no technically, well, Abram, you can hook up with Hagar. It's not hard to see. It's not hard to see marriages generally in a wreck in our culture. And it, and it can seem really, really complicated. But I want to just say it's not that complicated. It may be a process of restoring where there's been brokenness and a forgiveness where there's been hurt and a healing where there's been real wound. But here's the core. Start functioning as... One, when they didn't, man, there was a wreck. She was mad at him. He was like, easy, be mad at her. It all blew up. It's really that simple. Now, uh, a lot of you, again, you're, you're married right now, and I hope you're thinking not about, yeah, somebody, somebody else really needs to hear this. You are, I am the one that needs to be reminded. See, this is just good for me. Because Sunday afternoon, I can thank me. It's a good reminder of me. No, today it's, it's us. Fourth, blaming our sin on others just makes the mess messier. Because this is, does Sarai admit her sin? No, what's she say? May God judge you. <laughs> May the wrong be done to me be upon you. Does Abram acknowledge his? Which was what? Yeah, Loving your wife does not mean you do everything she wants. I know that's like, oh, you're not allowed to say that. I am. Husbands, loving your wife does not mean you do everything she wants. She actually has a flesh that sometimes needs to go, no, no, no. I heard you, but I'm not listening. In other words, I'm not going with that. 
It was ultimately as the head of his home, it was his responsibility to go, babe, I know you're frustrated and I am too. This has been a long wait, but this is not the plan. We are we are one and our responsibility is not to help God. Our responsibility is to trust God. See, husbands, you're listening. There's moments where you and I, we need to step in to our wife's doubt and our wife's frustration and our wife's disappointment and not just go along with it or protect ourselves and say, well, why don't you go after somebody else? Which is what Abram does. We need to acknowledge Some of us just need to acknowledge, I have not led our relationship well. I've been afraid of you, and I've been afraid of your wrath. And so I just go with it and try and dodge it when it comes back at me. That's what's happening here. And so it may, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Abram didn't acknowledge his sin. He just tried to get out of the way of the wrath and send it on. How about Hagar? I shouldn't have despised you. God doesn't love me more than he loves you. The fact that I have conceived and you have it. I'm sure that's harder for you. She just rubbed rubbed the salt in the wound. And then when it got hard for her, what'd she do? She ran away. And folks, listen. That's almost what all of us are tempted to do when we make a mess. We just kind of want to run away from it and hope that somehow it's going to just like clean itself up. And, And messes just don't clean themselves up. There is, there is such an important section that happens now when she runs away. Watch. Back to Genesis 16. Now the angel of the Lord found her. She had run and what? He tracks her down. He found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. In other words, it would seem from where they are to where she's headed that she's headed back to Egypt. It would seem that way. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? He's not like, well, what's happening here? I don't know. Tell me. Does he know? Yes, he knows. He knows. He wants her to acknowledge. Don't miss this. He wants us to acknowledge. Tell me about the mess. I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. True. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they too, they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, further behold, you are with child and you'll bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, which is actually a compliment. Sounds not like a compliment, but it's actually a compliment. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. 
Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who, this is, this is marvelous, folks. You are a God who sees. For she said, I, I, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? You see, what this second part of this text reveals is something that I definitely desperate that we don't miss, and that is this, that God is not blind to our mess. He sees our mess. And you may know, you may go, yeah, I know. I know God sees. He's omniscient. He knows everything. God sees our mess. But he doesn't just see our mess. What does he do? What did, what did the angel of the Lord do for Hagar? <laughs> he meets us in our mess. And again, if I can challenge us as men, men, we are often inclined to see a mess and then go, wow, what a mess. Y'all ought to clean that up and not step into it. To be like the Lord that sees and then meets the mess. He sees her and he meets her. He sees us and he meets us. And then he doesn't just meet us. Did you, did you see what he did? He spoke to her, and he spoke to her again, and he spoke to her uh, again. He sees us, he meets us, and he speaks to us. This is, this is the grace of God, yes? Yeah, well, we, when we declared, what grace, what grace, that song that Matt just wrote for this friendship of God's here, what grace, what grace, this is Hagar going, what grace, God saw me, met me, spoke to me, I saw him, and I'm still breathing. What grace, I don't deserve to still be alive. And there is in this text, a reminder for every one of us right now. Hey, we all make messes. The church is not a collection of people who no longer make messes. We like to put on that way, but that's just not true. The church is a collection of people who still make messes and believe that God sees it and will meet us and speak to us. And folks, the fact that you are here this morning is not an accident. I believe with all my heart, the fact that you are here, the fact that you are logged in right now, the fact that you are listening is the grace of God speaking to you, that you do not have to remain in your mess. You don't have to just live with it. You don't have to just hope it'll somehow clean itself up, that there is a word of the Lord to you. And it's very clear Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. The very clear word of the Lord is if you've made a mess, do what? Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Don't blame it. Just return to it and submit. But for her to return and submit, what would have she had to say? I was wrong. You see, embedded in this, is that returning and submitting, which is the word of the Lord to me, and it's the word of the Lord to you this morning. Whatever your mess, big, small, the word of the Lord is to return and submit, which requires beginning with admitting. You understand? Are you with me? That if the mess, 
It's because you just grew impatient with God. You thought, God, you're just not doing enough. That you'd come back, you return, and you'd submit, and you'd admit, I've been trying to help you, God, instead of trust you. You don't need my help. You need my submission. See, this is not theoretical. I'm absolutely confident that for some of you listening right now, that which will bring restoration, the beginning of restoration to your mess is for you to admit that right there. God, I have been on this mission that that I've got to help. I've got to do more than what you are doing because this has gone south. And it's for you to stop and say, I'm trusting you with my eternity. I'm trusting you with my sin. And I'm going to trust you with this situation. I'll trust you. Admit you've been trying to help instead of trust. Or it may be to go, I've made this mess and I'm coming back, Lord, to say, I, I lost my moral compass of your word in my life. I've engaged in things and said things and done things and accepted things that, that were once very clear in my life, but they got fuzzy because I started to raise the volume of the culture and I started to raise the volume of other people in my life and in so diminished the volume of this book. And I'm back saying, I admit I was wrong. I want to submit to this moral compass. If you're single and you're involved sexually, you need to return and admit, Lord, I'm wrong. If you've been building a a life for yourself inside your marriage, you need to return and submit and say, it's been about me and not about us, and I admit that. Because part of that admission may be, I've not honored the oneness of marriage. A lot of messes in our current day is simply right there. I've not honored the oneness of marriage. And it's return and submit and admit. I've been selfish and I'm not blaming you. I'm admitting I've been selfish. I've been looking out for me. And I'm wrong. Or it be that, Lord, I see it. I didn't see it, but I see it right now. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else that, I'm in this mess because what somebody else did or what somebody else didn't do. It's my boss's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my dad's fault. And I need to stop blaming because all it's done is making the mess messier. So I don't know which one connects to you. But I know I, at core, 
have to regularly come back to some version of these four. So I want to invite you there in your seat. If you're at home, maybe you've been listening as you've been stirring around doing something. Would you stop wherever you are, just like we're stopped in here. Bow your head. Maybe you want to get on your knees. I'm not asking you to, but maybe you do. And just say, Lord, I want to return and then submit and confess to him. Don't be reluctant. He is the God who sees. He is the God who will meet you. He is the God who restores. If you think, I, I, don't, I don't really have anything to confess, then ask the Lord by his spirit to reveal because he who says he has no sin is a liar. Thank you, God, for your great grace. Thank you for the incredible invitation to return to you that you don't say to us, well, you made this mess, fix it yourself. But that you speak your loving grace and your mercy. What grace to be a friend of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness to us, for mercy and grace that are new every day that's how much we need it. Lord, would you speak to us even as we worship now? Days are gripped with doubt, and your truth keeps slipping away. God, I know you're for me, but it's so hard to trust in the pain. When my hopes come burning down, help me see your hand in the flame. Forging a new and truer trust in its place Lord, I come weary and broken Lord, I come to be mended in faith There is healing in your name I come Sing together. 
you hear the, the voice of the Father who loves you in spite of your mess. He loves you. He could not love you more. He speaks to you and he says, return to me and trust me. And so, Father, it is as we close, uh, I cry to you. I plead with you, Lord, that, that there would be a broken and a contrite heart that you won't despise, that you will welcome, 
that your great grace and the greatness of your glory would be revealed, not in our goodness, but in our brokenness. That your love would be revealed in the midst of the mess we make. And so, Father, would you speak and would you restore and would you renew and give hope because of your great grace. Thank you for speaking to us, for calling us back home. It's in your name that we pray. We give you praise. Amen. If we can pray for you in a particular way, I do want to invite you that either on our website, there's a connect card there, or if you download our app, we don't have a lot of paper stuff anymore because of the touching of things. But that doesn't mean we don't want to pray for you and we don't want to join with you in what God is doing in your heart. So communicate with us. Send us an email. Let us know how we can pray for you and with you and rejoice with you as you experience God's healing work in your life. Give him praise and make sure you share the story. It will give others hope. Hagar's story is a story of great hope to me. God bless. Thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll do our Q&A if you want to hang on and participate. God bless.